I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. Okay, hello. Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. It's December 2nd, 2020. This is our second episode of season two. Hey, Dr. Rupp. How's it going? Dr. Jenkins, I'm good. We're in December. We're in December of 2020. We've made it. Oh, we're almost there. These last 60 months, 60 month year has been a long one. 2020 can only hurt us for a little longer. It can always hurt you more. I've said that before on this podcast, <laughs> last episode. That's the theme for season two. <laughs> There's still room for hurt. Okay, but you're, you're sporting a new mustache, or at least I haven't seen the stash this full before. Yeah, you know, it just felt right. I'm you not know, sure why. You know that like No Shave November is, is gone now. Like You're supposed to shave again, but maybe, I mean, are you just like getting ready to be a dad? Is that what this is about? Yeah, well, this is much more shaving than I normally do, do. You know, normally I have an unkept gray beard. So this is actually requires more maintenance than that. Um, I think it shows less age than a gray beard, but not baby face. I mean, you look like Tom Selleck. And I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of compliments on this. And um, I did residency interviews the last two days. And one of the residents said that he's glad that the program is mustache friendly. So oh. it's a recruitment tool. Okay? Great. Great. You're going to invite all the weird mustache guys. Great. Dr. Milne uh, specifically asked me to grow this for recruitment purposes. <laughs> How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, fine. I was on nights. So I, I spent Thanksgiving night in the hospital and have to say that the cafeteria had a pretty good spread. Um, there was some turkey, some mashed potatoes, uh, some veggies, and it was better than what we would have made at home. So can't Wait, complain. So you didn't have one at home before you came in? We made sides that we got delivered from like one of those home, you know, like home chef. It's like a blue apron thing. We do. Yeah, home yeah. Chef. So we had biscuits and green beans beforehand, and then I had the hospital dinner on top of that. And then we made stuffing two days later. Wow. <laughs> so that was, a, that was my Thanksgiving. How was yours? That's pretty festive, man. Uh, <laughs> I was also working nights. I worked the two nights before, and I think you worked the two nights after me. So mm -hmm. we, were, we were both kind of running the night shifts. Um, and, man, those just, like, wreck me now. I'm such a grandpa. Dude, I convinced myself that I had COVID based on night shifts. Like, yeah. I, like, <laughs> yeah. No, you just feel like garbage the next day and you're like, it's definitely the virus. But um, no, so, you know, with the pandemic and everything, we were supposed to get together with my family, like all my siblings and their kids, and it was going to be a big thing. But, you know, levels are just too crazy in Utah right now. And so we were like, 
we just decided to do it at our house, which actually ended up being kind of cool and I think memorable. And my wife made like an amazing spread while I slept off the night shift. And then uh, we actually like sat down at the table and we watched uh, the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, while we ate. And I got to say, it was like a mildly like religious experience watching that with my children. I haven't like seen it since high school when it came out. And so I was like, wow, this movie's like really good. <laughs> Dude, you are preaching to the choir on that. Um, I love those movies. I can basically quote the entire trilogy movies. Uh, let's see what else. Um, I think last week we bantered too much, so we probably shouldn't banter too much. Fair enough. But um, did you know that Baby Yoda actually has a name now? I saw Whisperings, but I didn't follow. Fill me in. His name is Grogu. Yeah, that's the name they chose for the baby. And uh, he's like 50 years old. And he's already been trained in the Jedi Temple, apparently. And that's why he knows how to use the Force. Anyway, this was a big revelation for me. Also, they did confirm that he's, in fact, a male character, which is not that relevant. But I've been calling it a boy, so that, that's nice. Grogu. And... Did you see the whole like Utah monolith thing? Like that's some nice local news. I did see that. It's actually gone. Did you see that? Yeah, I was really disappointed. Like as soon as I heard about it, I got on Reddit and be like, where is the Utah monolith? And someone had already found it on Google Earth using like a bunch of like really clever techniques and they posted the coordinates. And I was like, heck yes, this is my next Southern Utah trip. I'm gonna go make a pilgrimage to the monolith. And uh, yeah, someone already like went and ripped it out and <laughs> it's gone. Well, you and like a thousand other people had that idea. So that, that you know, crypto <laughs> took a pretty hard hit there. <laughs> oh, the cryptobiotic soil. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, I did yeah. see that. It was interesting and good for jokes, but I think I'm glad it's gone, to be honest. Well, I think it's going to save the state a lot of money so that they're not sending search and rescue crews out there to a bunch of stranded hikers who get lost because it's not like super easy terrain. So overall, it's probably a good thing that it's gone, but it was a nice little diversion. Right. Now search and rescue can focus their efforts on the hundreds of people who will get hurt, lost, or caught in avalanches in the Cottonwoods this year. Yeah. Way more important. Yeah, perfect. They need to focus their efforts uh, on that overrun bit of backcountry, quote unquote, backcountry skiing terrain. <laughs> All right. Well, last time uh, we said we weren't going to talk about COVID-19 again. And obviously that was a lie uh, because newsflash, the pandemic hasn't gone anywhere. But maybe to get around it, we could call it SARS-CoV-2 today. Sounds way cooler. Yeah, that's not um, going to stick with me, but uh, fair enough. <laughs> we have more negative trials to discuss, okay? Come on. Yeah, okay. So we talked about the final report for the ACPT1 or ACT1 remdesivir trial last time. And, you know, if that was the only remdesivir trial you looked at, it would appear that remdesivir led to a quicker recovery. Uh, but shortly after we published our last episode, the World Health Organization came out and said that they recommended against giving remdesivir. Um, and that was based in part on the completion of the WHO coordinated solidarity trial, which included 2,750 patients who got remdesivir. So a much bigger study than the ACT-1. 
and they have submitted an article for publication and, and the preprint manuscript is available on medrxiv.org, but I really didn't want to go read that. <laughs> so rather than spending time on an unpublished, you know, preprint paper, let's just say the jury is still out on remdesivir and we can review that one when it's officially published. Does that sound good? That sounds good to me. Let's just wait six months until it's printed, and then we can talk about it then. Um, but yeah, we, we're we're this is consistently and constantly changing. That's sort of another major point here. You know, juries still out probably on a lot of this stuff, and we will continue to try to keep you updated as much as possible. But we're refining previous statements where we said maybe just give it. Let's just say decide for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. If it's a negative effect, I don't know. I just, uh, to be honest, since the WHO came out, I haven't really been giving it this week because I'm just like, it's really expensive. If there's not a clear benefit, why do it, you know? Because you yeah. actually could cause more harm, especially like, you know, if they have like liver injury or something like that, so. Yeah, it's probably not innocuous. And I've definitely been been doing less of it i would agree with that i think you know if someone's still pretty sick i think it maybe has to be a little individualized and risk yeah. benefits assessed and sort of discussed with experts but yeah i think that's a good a good take less is using it less we're using it less and less and that's probably a good thing but yeah. we'll change this next week not good for gilead yeah uh and then uh then came the dan mask trial or the Danish mask trial that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine on November 18th and seemed like that caused a little bit of a kerfuffle on Twitter. Um, so I thought we should probably talk about that. Yeah, masks don't work, next. <laughs> so this trial was designed to answer the question, does wearing a mask protect the person who is wearing the mask from getting COVID? We need to remember that. We need yeah. to remember that. Like, what is this? What are we trying to answer here? Right. It is not asking the question, does wearing a mask help reduce the spread to others, right? Which is like a source control question. But it's an interesting study. So in April and May of 2020, they enrolled adults who spent at least three hours a day outside the home and who worked jobs that did not require masks already. Um, and it's noteworthy that they did this during a time when mask wearing was very uncommon in Denmark outside of the hospital, like less than 5% of people were wearing masks, but they were doing the other stuff like quarantining, social distancing, frequent hand washing, limiting visitors to hospitals. And at that time, cafes and restaurants were closed for the majority of the study. Um, and so what they did is they randomized the participants to either social distancing and that other stuff alone or all those good public health measures, plus wearing a mask outside the home. And then they actually gave each person 50 high quality, three layer surgical masks. So the primary outcome for this study was uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection in the mask wearer at one month. So it was only a month long intervention. And the way they, they measured it was they tested them with PCR and antibody testing. This is interesting. The participants actually used a finger prick point of care test for the antibody testing at the beginning and end of the study. And I was reading that this antibody test is actually no longer recommended by the FDA because they didn't feel like it was accurate enough. So that's an issue. 
Nice. They also performed their own oropharyngeal and nasal swabs for PCR tests at one month and then any time they had symptoms. And they also had a secondary outcome for PCR positivity for other respiratory viruses, which I think is worth looking at. Um, it's, so at the time, the incidence of COVID in Denmark was at about 2%. And so they designed the study to detect a reduction in infection rate from 2% to 1%. So they were looking for a 50% reduction and that's how they chose the size of the study, which was decently large, 6,000 patients. So they had 3,000 3, patients assigned to wear masks, 3,000 were assigned to the control group. Um, out of those 6,000, only 4,862 patients finished the study. Um, and then the ultimate results, 1.8% of people in the mass group tested positive for COVID, and 2.1% of people in the control group tested positive for COVID. And that's either based on antibodies or PCR. Um, but really, it was like all antibodies, like hardly anyone tested positive by PCR. The p-value was 0 0.38, so it was not statistically significant. So did this study show that masks had no protective effect at all for the wearer? I would say it's not conclusive on that point. The confidence intervals were pretty wide. And so the authors know, you know, the effect could range from 46% reduction in COVID infection to a 23% increased risk of infection. I would say there's likely some small protective effect, but it's definitely not as large as 50% reduction, which is what the authors hypothesize. I think in order to prove such a small effect, you'd have to do a much larger study, which really isn't practical or probably even ethical at this point. I did read one commentary that said in order to detect a 20% reduction, you would probably need 35,000 people. Um, but like, what if the effect is 20% versus 50%? That still would be pretty significant in helping reduce the spread, right? Because the way infections spread, it's nonlinear. So even like small changes have a pretty big impact. Um, I guess some other stuff, 46% of patients in the mask arm said they wore the mask as recommended. 47% said they wore it mostly or predominantly as recommended, and then 7% admitted to not wearing the mask as recommended. Um, I do think it's interesting that they were only asked to wear the masks when they left their houses, when most cases are probably transmitted at home, indoors, when you're around other people. And um, so it's likely that people who were infected uh, probably caught it when they weren't even wearing a mask. Um, so what the paper says is the data should not be used to conclude that a recommendation for everyone to wear masks in the community would not be effective in reducing SARS-CoV-2 infections because the trial did not test the role of masks in source control of SARS-CoV-2. And I think ultimately like, that's the big take home. Like, you know, this, this trial did not show evidence that masks protect the wearer. You should not feel invincible when you go to the grocery store just because you are wearing a mask. You still got to do the other stuff, like stay away from people, wash your hands, etc. Um, but also, like it is very likely based on observational studies that masks do reduce the spread to others, right? But so it's unfortunate we can't appeal to the population by saying wearing a mask protects yourself. We have to stick with wearing a mask will protect others <laughs> and slow the spread. And we all know how effective it is to appeal to the selflessness of Americans, right? <laughs> yeah so um agreed i think there's a lot to to unpack here the main sort of points that i had were that 
this was all very direct, self-directed, which could interject in, inject some bias. You know, people had to apply, like, you know, voice interest or apply. Um, and then they had to fill out surveys, collect baseline samples, and follow the recommendations, collect end of study samples, send them in, have an internet connection, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of risk of, of bias there um, and error, you know, when you're doing your own swab, how deep are you getting, you know, is a reasonable question. Um, I thought, you know, as you mentioned, the, the sort of overall low adherence to, you know, the strict mask wearing as directed was notable, but probably approximates real world conditions. I mean, how many people, you know, are wearing it underneath their nose or on their chin or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So, you know, a critique, but possibly, um, you know, again, sort of like the real world. Uh, the power, you know, issue you brought up, I think I saw some commentary and you did allude to this, that public health measures that, that are this cheap and safe and, you know, sort of don't pose any risk to anyone. Although, you know, maybe there was a 24% increased risk, but that can't be true, right? So <laughs> public health interventions like this that have, you know, even like a pretty modest relative risk reduction are significant and that the trial, you know, again, was, yeah, underpowered to detect smaller relative risk reduction. Someone said like even a 1% relative risk reduction is still going to save X number of lives, which was yeah. like striking to me. And so we don't really know about that. Um, and, you know, shouldn't totally give up on mass in that way. And then, you know, you already talked about the source control issue. And so my takeaway is that I'm still going to wear a mask at work, <laughs> you know, and uh, out in the community because, right, it, it may protect others if I have it, and there could be a much more modest benefit that you're getting anyway, and it's such yeah. a low-risk intervention that, you know, why not? Yeah, I mean, like, that, like, ultimately, like you said, you're going to wear your mask at work, right? And, like, I didn't go to Thanksgiving with my family because I didn't feel safe even with a mask, right? Like, the mask is not the end all, but it right. makes sense to do it. And I think you could just look around the world and see whether masks are helping or other public health measures are working right. Like in South Korea, where mask wearing is very high, and I would assume other public health measures like hand washing are, are in effect, they have like hardly any COVID there. But in South Dakota, which went 62% for Trump, they have like the highest rates in the world right now. Like it's insane how many people have died in South Dakota with such a small population. There was also a CDC report that came out this week on Kansas, where the governor did issue an executive order requiring masks in public spaces. And this order allowed counties to opt out. And there were 24 counties that decided not to opt out and they went with the mask mandate. And their COVID-19 incidents decreased by 6%. But in the 81 counties that did opt out and did not have mask mandates, COVID-19 incidents increased by 100%. So even though you didn't see like a huge decrease in those counties that had the mass mandate and the ones that didn't have the mass mandate, it like exploded. So anyway, I, I think we're going to keep recommending masks and hand washing and staying home and all of those good things. I guess the big question is like, is it good that the Annals of Internal Medicine published this paper? There was a lot of criticism, you know, about it being published because I think people worried that it would be misinterpreted or weaponized to discourage mask wearing. 
right? You got all the mask or the COVID truthers out there that, you know, my rights are being trampled on and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, masks have become a culture war issue. You can tell. It's absurd. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about that. Like, we're, I mean, yeah. we're not really dancing around it, but the politicization of this is yeah. absolutely absurd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the fact in last week in medicine, like, you're being absurd, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell who someone voted for by whether they wear a freaking mask. Like, that's completely outrageous. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a tool in the toolbox. You know, the Midwest is out of control. <laughs> and, uh, right, as part of a large public, like, public health, you know, has dealt with things similar to this in the past and is, you know, a branch of science specifically created to deal with public health emergencies such as this. And so a mask mandate that is so low risk and has, you know, so inexpensive is like, you know, yeah. sort of why not do it? And I think that, you know, Vinay Prasad makes a good point that, uh, talking about not publishing scientific stuff just because it's sort of negative or because we're worried about how people are going to take it as a pretty slippery slope. And so yeah. um, I think, you know, there were a couple of things that could have potentially been done better, but this was kind of real world stuff. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad they published it. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're suppressing results that just kind of like feeds the conspiracy theories more, and uh, yeah, better to publish and acknowledge the limitations. So should we talk about something else now? Agreed. Yep. I think uh, I'm sure we're not done with this and we'll keep wearing masks. We'll, we'll keep beating that dead horse. Okay. So what, okay. Do you, what do you got for us? Yeah. So actually I do have a non-COVID paper. Um, this I'm going to talk about a paper in the New England Journal from November 14th. Um, by Dr. Guimaraes et al. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it was called Rivaroxaban in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation and a Bioprosthetic Mitral Valve. Uh, so this is the Rivaroxaban for valvular heart disease and atrial fibrillation, which somehow equals the river trial. I'm not sure where the E comes from, but um, river trial. So um, just to remind everyone, we're thrombosis experts. Um, we actually have the director of the thrombosis service amongst our ranks now, Dr. Jenkins. Co-director. Co Co-director. Yep, that's right. And I'm not a thrombosis expert. I decided to be a thrombologist. <laughs> that's it. That's awesome. All right. Well, we've got our resident thrombologist here. Um, so, you know, the background here, as you likely know, is that valvular atrial fibrillation is not the, your run-of-the-mill AFib and that DOACs are not well studied in valvular atrial fibrillation or in the presence of a bioprosthetic valve. Um, the efficacy and safety of DOACs in the setting of bioprosthetic valves is based on subgroup analyses of the sentinel DOAC trials in atrial fibrillation. So those included 31 patients on a Pixaban and 131 patients on a Doxaban, and that was in the uh, Aristotle and Engage AF Timmy 48 trials, which you know sort of uh, injected DOACs into the equation. So they did have you know very small numbers of bioprosthetic valve patients, um, but the Rivaroxaban atrial fibrillation trial, Rocket AF, actually excluded patients with bioprosthetic valves. So the river, the river trial is attempting to answer the question of whether or not specifically rivaroxaban, but, you know, sort of under the whole umbrella, um, DOACs, are they safe and effective in the setting of a, of a bioprosthetic valve? 
Um, additionally, we should note that patients that had a mitral valve replacement within the, the previous three months were excluded, excluded from all of the trials. So we don't know anything about folks who have a fresh bioprosthetic mitral valve. Um, it should be noted that this is a study investigated, not investigating mechanical valves where DOACs are still not approved. Um, dabigatrin, which no one uses, but is specifically contraindicated in mechanical valves as there's data showing increased thrombotic and bleeding risk when compared to warfarin. And the other DOACs have not been well studied and are not approved for use with mechanical valves. So still, that is a separate issue and one that we're not talking about. We are talking about bioprosthetic valves. Um, and bioprosthetic valves, you know, again, don't in and of themselves require anticoagulation, but this is in the setting of, of atrial fibrillation, which generally does require anticoagulation with a high enough CHADS VASC. So try to keep that all straight. Um, this was a multi-center randomized open label non-inferiority trial um, with blinded adjudication of outcomes. It was completed in 49 sites in Brazil, um, did get a little bit of funding from Bayer. Uh, inclusion criteria were atrial fibrillation or flutter, a bioprosthetic mitral valve, receiving anticoagulation, and they could be involved within or enrolled within 48 hours of mitral valve surgery. Exclusion criteria included contraindication to anticoagulation, very high bleeding risk, transient atrial fibrillation caused by surgery, and a mechanical valve or a mechanical valve like we talked about. Um, patients were randomized one-to-one. Um, and the primary outcome was a composite of death, major cardiovascular events, and major, major bleeding events at 12 months. They also looked at some secondary efficacy outcomes that was a, included a composite of death from cardiovascular causes or thromboembolic events. Um, and the safety outcomes were mainly bleeding as defined by the Rocket AF trial, um, and then the Timmy and BART classification system systems, which are international groups who come up with definitions for what a, what equals major and non-major clinically relevant bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. You guys can look into that if you want. Um, the stats here were a little tricky, and, and that's not our strong suit here last week, as you all know, but they talk about um, a restricted mean survival time, which is the mean time free from an outcome event up to a pre-specified time point and reflects the area under the survival curve. And is the, the main point of RMST is, is that it is not dependent on the number of events, I guess. And so to me, it's a little bit notable that, that they are reporting time to event as the primary outcome here, which means like it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. <laughs> um, and we can talk a little bit about that here in a minute. Um, but... There was a between group difference, uh, or they pre-specified that a between group difference of eight days would mean that rivaroxaban is not inferior to warfarin, and, and that's been used in other cardiovascular studies. So um, about 500 patients were randomized to rivaroxaban, 500 were randomized to warfarin, their baseline characteristics were well matched. Um, you know, pretty low dropout rate, but rivaroxaban was discontinued in 52 patients and warfarin was discontinued in 36 patients. The patients on warfarin were therapeutic about 66% of the time. Um, the mean time to the primary outcome event was 347.5 days in the rivaroxaban group and 340.1 days in the warfarin group. So that's a difference of 7.4 days um, with a confidence interval of negative 1.4 to 6.3 and a p-value of less than 0 0.001 for non-inferiority non and 0 0.10 for superiority. 
Mm. So, um, you know, it was the, the folks that were on River Oxaban went longer without an event um, in this analysis. Mm. Um, you know, at 12 months, the, second, the composite secondary outcome of death um, from cardiovascular causes or thromboembolic events occurred in 17 patients in the River Oxaban group and 26 in the warfarin group with a non-statistically significant hazard ratio. Um, there were a couple secondary outcomes or, or two secondary outcomes that did favor river oxaban, and that was any stroke and non-fatal stroke. Um, so, you know, secondary outcomes, but potentially notable. Uh, major bleeding occurred in seven patients in the river oxaban group and 13 in the warfarin group with a hazard ratio of 0.54 that wasn't statistically significant. Um, total bleeding was not statistically significant regardless of sort of classification system and the subgroup analyses were, were mostly unremarkable, um, except that the group randomized within three months of mitral valve surgery had a significantly lower hazard ratio with river oxaban for the primary outcome. So, um, you know, a few things that I thought maybe we should highlight were that this was non-blinded, although the adjudication, you know, outcomes were blinded. It was partially funded by Bayer. The stats with the RMST were a little bit hard to follow, but I think overall this provides a little bit more, um, you know, data and credence to DOACs being at least non-inferior to warfarin in a lot of settings, specifically the bioprosthetic mitral valve setting. And uh, I think us being big DOAC guys is supported by this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't really have much to add. That was a really good breakdown. Um, I guess the the main thing I had was was what you were saying. Like it's just kind of a strange outcome. Like I think our brains are just more geared towards like, well, which one had fewer strokes, right? Because that's what you care about. That's why we put people on DOAC. So that's what I want to know is like who had fewer strokes, the the Zarelto or the Warfarin group. And you know, they share those rates, but I don't know if they're statistically significant. Like the rates of stroke were lower in the river oxaban arm with a hazard ratio of 0.25 with pretty good confidence intervals. But like they didn't come out and say that that was statistically significant. So I think it is. But like, yeah. but like you'd think that would be like the big outcome you would want to report. Like strokes were lower. Okay, great. <laughs> but like, no, it had to be this big complicated thing that involved all these other major cardiovascular events major bleeding and death, et cetera. But um, anyway, like this is kind of a, a niche patient population because like we probably don't manage a ton of these, you know, afibers with bioprosthetic mitral valves is mostly probably going to be initiated in a cardiology clinic. But it's like, like you said, it's, it's, it's just one more good piece of literature that suggests DOACs probably are not inferior to warfarin in most instances you know, excluding the very specific things you talked about before. So, yeah, I thought it was nice. Yeah, I think, you know, I was, again, sort of struck by whenever you're dealing with anticoagulation, something bad's probably going to happen. <laughs> Whether it's, you know, a stroke slash clot or a bleed, you're on a, you're on a trajectory to meet with one of those at some point and maybe framing it in this way as – when is that going to happen later? <laughs> you know, when's the bad thing? What's going to reduce the bad thing more and make it happen later or less often uh, is always kind of the equation with with DOA or with anticoagulation. And I think it remains that way. And these are nuanced discussions and, and decisions. But yeah, like like we both said, 
Doe acts are, are good. <laughs> Doe acts good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, cool, cool. Well, um, we should also probably just mention there was, there was a trial that came out in the New England Journal on convalescent plasma, November 24th. Negative. And, uh, next. Yeah, next. <laughs> we, all, we all knew it wasn't going to work. But I, I will say that, like, early on, our institution was pretty enthusiastic about convalescent plasma. They were like, go get it. And I actually never got it for any of my patients. I tried a few times and like, it was like logistically challenging. And so I kind of gave up, but anecdotally, like the patients that I know of, like from our colleagues that got convalescent plasma usually didn't do that well. Like some of them actually ended up with like worse respiratory failure, which was maybe unrelated, maybe volume related. I don't know. That's a very small end though. So I shouldn't even say it on the air, but this, this study, you know, looked at, 228 patients who got plasma, 105 who got placebo, and there was like no difference in any of the outcomes. And so, yeah, convalescent Order plasma. Scale. <laughs> so maybe it's just because it wasn't Tom Hanks's convalescent plasma, though. Like, if you're getting it from the right people, maybe it works better. I don't know. Obviously. I think I am on the record as saying convalescent plasma makes sense. Um, so I still think it does. <laughs> But it didn't work, and uh, you know, another another uh, failed negative. COVID. Another paper for the the COVID dustbin. Okay, uh, some other interesting trials we don't need to talk a lot about that I think were just worth mentioning. New England Journal had a phase two double blind randomized controlled trial of patients with NASH who were treated with semaglutide, which is a GLP one receptor agonist, versus placebo. And the patients who got semaglutide had higher rates of NASH resolution with no worsening of fibrosis compared to placebo. However, there was no difference in improvement of their fibrosis, but I think that, that, that could be promising. Um, there was also a, we basically have no treatment for, so that, that's nice. Right, like that's the saddest thing about NASH, right? It's like, well, lose some weight, uh, try to get your diabetes under control, but like, Maybe that'll work. Like this seemed to be something maybe we could offer our patients down the line. Um, there was another uh, paper in the New England Journal, uh, phase two trial of patients with diabetes treated with once weekly Icodec insulin versus daily Clargene. And you know, both groups had an average hemoglobin A1C of eight at the beginning of the trial. And really the treatment arms had similar improvements in their A1C and similar rates of hypoglycemia. So it didn't seem to be uh, more dangerous than daily glargine. Th this could be really exciting for those patients that are just really horrible at remembering to do their insulin, you know, once a week. That's how I would want to do it if I was a diabetic. So obviously that gets a little dicey if they're sick and they can't eat or whatever, but. Yeah, nice. I'd go for the, uh, you know, artificial intelligence pancreas with oh, the. sure. The pump with the glucose yeah, monitor that just like does its own thing. <laughs> That's true. That would be even better. Uh, and then one last one that I thought was interesting, and, and this wasn't like a full uh, trial that was published, but it was like an interesting correspondence that was published in the New England Journal of an N of one trial of statin versus placebo versus no treatment. So they took 60 patients who had discontinued statins because of symptoms, right? Like, oh, I have muscle cramps or whatever. And they gave them 12 bottles with each bottle had 30 days of pills in them. And so four of the bottles had a Torvastatin, four of the bottles had placebo, 
And then four of the bottles were actually empty. There was nothing in those bottles. And uh, then they gave them like a random sequence to take the pills. And then they were supposed to record every day on their iPhone from a scale of one to 10, how symptomatic they were. Uh, and so it was interesting. The mean symptom intensity was eight during the no tablet months. And then it was 15.4 during placebo months and 16.3 during statin months. So it was basically the same if you were getting placebo or statin, but then like noticeably better if you weren't taking anything. Um, and so uh, anyway, it was basically just a, a trial or a, yeah, a trial showing an, a nocebo effect. And, uh, and so most people who have symptoms with statins, it's probably nocebo. And so they use this to get, you know, half of the patients back on statins after the trial was done. So How do we, I, I can't talk about this intelligently, which may be a theme of the show, but um, can't, haven't we done stuff where, yeah, you can just compare placebo. I mean, I know the nocebo is a little bit novel, but we've compared placebo to statins and shown that there's not a significant difference in, in symptoms, I believe. But I've always struggled with how to counsel patients. I mean, I've, you know, as a hospitalist, we're not, we don't face this too often, but like, how do you tell a patient, um, your muscle cramps are not, not from the statin and, and you should just take the statin and I can trick you into taking a placebo and you'd still have the symptoms or not taking any pill and the symptoms would go away. Uh, your symptoms aren't real. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> that is a great point. Uh, real world applicability is probably limited. You'd have to actually enroll them in this little experiment. Say, all right, here's a year's worth. Come back in a year and tell me how your symptoms work. <laughs> but yeah. No, Interesting. It's Interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's all I got today. Yeah. Likewise. Um, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Late Thanksgiving and moving into the holiday season. So that's exciting. But yeah. 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 All right. Well, we should shoot for next week. I think we can make it happen. <laughs>